Friends, I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution. As many of you know, we have a crowdsourcing campaign to support our We the People podcast and also the Live at the NCC podcast, which will run the audio of our program today. And thanks to our friends at the John Templeton Foundation, there's a one-to-one -one match for every dollar you donate. I'm pleased to report that we have uh, donations from 47 states, the Northern Mariana Islands, and several countries from around the world. Friends, right now, if you are in India listening, please go to constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people and make a donation of any amount, $5, $10 or more to show your support for the great programming that you're about to hear today. Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Lana Ulrich, Senior Director of Content. January 26 marks Republic Day in India, when the country celebrates the date on which the Constitution of India came into effect in 1950. This week, the Constitution Center hosted a program comparing the U.S. and Indian constitutions in partnership with the VD Center for Legal Policy. The panel discussed how each constitution protects fundamental rights like the right to privacy and equality, whether freedom of speech exists in India as it does in America, how the Supreme Court of India differs from the Supreme Court of the United States, and more. Our guests were Indian constitutional law experts and senior advocates at the Supreme Court of India, Arvind Dattar and Menaka Guraswamy, and American comparative law expert Tom Ginsburg of the University of Chicago Law School. Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. This conversation was streamed live on January 25th, 2022. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Arvind Dattar, Manaka, Guraswamy, and Tom Ginsburg. Let's set the stage with a concrete example to help us understand uh, the similarities and differences between U.S. and Indian constitutionalism. The Indian Supreme Court not long ago, issued an important decision involving the right to privacy. And each of you has written about this uh, important decision, including Manaka Guraswamy. You wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about the privacy decision, where you talked about uh, the ruling which envisioned a right to privacy flowing through other crucial rights like equality, dignity, life expression, association and speech. Tell us, uh, Manaka Goswami, about this important uh, decision, which was issued in 2017. What was the constitutional foundation of it and how is it uh, similar and different to important privacy decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court? Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to be here. Uh, at the National Constitution Center. So the decision is is named, named for K.S. Puttaswamy, who's a 91-year-old retired judge. Um, and he, along with 22 other petitioners, challenged um, the constitutionality of our, kind of like a data bank that we have, um, which, is, which is called Aadhaar in India. Um, long journey, um, and the Supreme Court, sitting in a large panel of judges, really uh, gave a Give a give a series of judgments, um, which is which is kind of our equivalent of Brown versus Board of Education, because you know it's that seminal, that critical, uh, both as a constitutional decision as well as a, as a decision that influences social fabric, 
what does the Supreme Court say? The Supreme Court says that in the right to privacy, you have, you know, the ability to seclude yourself. You have a right to uh, freedom of choice in terms of food, in terms of dress, in terms of sexual orientation, uh, in terms of ideology, uh, what you believe in. Um, I think importantly, um, there's, there's just beautiful language in the decision. Uh, because the decision says um, things that, you know, like it says the purpose of elevating certain rights is to insulate their exercise from the disdain of majorities, whether legislative or popular, whether legislative or popular. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of sentiment such as that, um, judicial wisdom such as that that um, really has raised this decision to a different level because it sets itself up, it sets the court up really as the arbiter of what we call constitutional morality, which may be quite different from social morality or popular morality or morality of the state uh, of the or the government of the time. Um, so it's an extraordinary decision because the court also is introspective in the decision. It, it um, kind of criticizes itself for its pr previous decisions uh, where it upheld, for instance, um, the criminalization of homosexuality. Um, so it's really quite astonishing. Um, it's astonishing for its width because um, the judges navigate issues like, you know, lack of reproductive choices or telephone tapping or um, forced feeding. Um, so it's, it's quite extraordinary for both constitutionally the effect it's had and it will continue to have on individual rights, individual freedoms, uh, be that against the state or be that within a community. Um, and it's also extraordinary because I think with it, it has become the foundation for many new freedoms that will be mapped onto this constitution. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction to the decision. Let me ask you, Avandatar, to tell us more about the text that the court relied on, uh, which included Article 21. One of our questioners, Sarah Evans, says she'd love to hear all of your views on Article 21 and the substantive right to life and its relation to human dignity. That right to life um, was read to include a right to privacy in the 2017 decision. So maybe tell us about the text of Article 21 and, and yes. how its interpretation is similar and different to the due process clause uh, and equal protection clause where, where the U.S. Supreme Court has found rights of uh, privacy and dignity. Thank you, Dr. Rosen, for inviting me. And uh, I have very pleasant memories of vis visiting the National Constitution Center. And I, was, I still remember the wonderful lecture we heard there in the small amphitheater that you have inside the center. Now, on the law of privacy, as uh, Menaka said, it's it was the main petitioner was a retired 91-year-old judge. But, you know, the uh, entire case came by a completely unexpected turn of events. Uh, as she said, you like you got a social security number. We The government introduced what is called the Aadhaar card. That is, you have a card and under the act, you are entitled for basic uh, amenities like a ration card or cooking gas for poor people and so on. So once you produce that card, you could get entitled for these welfare benefits. But the government started expanding this card, saying that if you want to file your income tax return, you give the Aadhaar card. You want a school admission, you produce the Aadhaar card. And then we have we had no idea where the data was being recorded, how it was being used. So in the course of the arguments, we raised the point, I was appearing for one of the petitioners, we raised the point that, look, it's violating our right to privacy. I mean, 
what are you doing with our data? How do we know what's happening? So the then Attorney General, he said that India doesn't, our constitution does not recognize a right to privacy. And it so happened that there was a judgment of 1954 where a bench of six judges held that India doesn't recognize a law of right to privacy. And then there was a bench of eight judges in 1964, 10 years later, which again reiterated that there's no law, no fundamental right to privacy under the Indian constitution. Unlike what you have in the Fourth Amendment, where you say that all people will be safe and secure in their homes. I don't know the exact language, but I think it's the Fourth Amendment, which says that you're entitled to be safe and secure in in your home and so on. So now the Supreme Court was faced with a bench of six judges, a bench of eight judges. As you know, the Indian Supreme Court doesn't sit en banc. They sit in different benches. So the Supreme Court said, look, this is an important point. Why do you say we don't have the right to privacy? It's about time we tested this proposition. And then they constitute a bench of nine judges. And there was a wonderful dissenting uh, opinion of a judge in the eight judges bench, which said that right to privacy is there. He did refer to a number of U.S. cases like Munn versus Illinois, Wolf versus Colorado and various other cases and said that a man's home is just absolutely, it has to be protected. And that was a case of surveillance where the police could ask you to report to the police station. They could come to your house and knock at midnight. He says then the entire country is a prison if there's no right to privacy. And that's how it went to nine judges. And then, as you see, as I got the law report, we, they were totally the Supreme Court considered 256 judgments of the Indian Supreme Court and a large number of judgments of the U.S. court, and then they held the right to privacy. Now, one question the judges asked us, India has part three of the constitution, which contains fundamental rights. It starts with Article 12 and ends with Article 36. Now, we have the right to equality under 14. As you put it, Article 21 is the right to life and liberty. We have the freedom of speech, right to religion, etc., 19, 24, 25, and so on. So they asked the question, where will you put this right to privacy? There is no right to privacy, yes. If you're going to read it into, does it does it form part of what they call the silences of the constitution? Is it going to be in the interstices of the constitution? Where do you put it in? Is it going to be in the right to equality, right to life and liberty and so on? And then they said that there's a concept of core rights and there's a penumbra around the core rights. And finally, the Supreme Court said the right to privacy cannot be located in any one particular right. And most significantly, they said, it permeates through the entire chapter on fundamental rights. Right to privacy is inherent in all the fundamental rights of the constitution. And finally, they said that you have three rights of privacy. They have delineated them. One is physical privacy, privacy of your body protection, informational privacy, and decisional autonomy. As Menaka said, your right to your career, right to choose your partner, and so on. So these are the three rights they recognized. And this was, now this has become perhaps one of the most important judgments in recent times, where we didn't have a right of privacy as recognized by the Supreme Court. But almost 50 years later, the Supreme Court itself overturned all these judgments and said, we have a fundamental right to privacy, though not written, it is implied in the entire chapter on fundamental rights. It's a very fascinating judgment. And uh, I must say that we did take a lot of advantage of the U.S. Supreme Court judgments, the wiretapping case in Katz versus United States and so on and so forth. I, there's no time, but we did a lot of research into the U.S. law and it was very useful. The famous sentence of a judge who said the right to be left alone and so on, yes. Ah, I think it was Brandeis who said that, Louis Brandeis who said that, yes. It was indeed. Justice Brandeis is a great Brandeis. favorite of the Constitution uh, Center and it's wonderful that 
of the Indian Supreme Court invoked him, as well as U.S. judgments like uh, MAP and Katz, as well as, as you've both written in your scholarship, U.S. constitutional scholars such as Lawrence Tribe and Mark Tushnet. Um, now, Tom Ginsburg, as I listened to your wonderful colleagues, this landmark privacy decision seems to have embraced the methodology of Griswold versus Connecticut and Roe v. Wade, a kind of penumbral reasoning, as, as we just heard, um, that invokes different sources to, to find a fundamental right that has textual grounding in different places, but, but, but is not perhaps originally intended by the constitution makers. Uh, this suggests that the Indian Supreme Court is quite uh, strong in its ability to make uh, judgments like this. And you've written in Judicial Reputation, a comparative theory that judges in South Asia are among the most respected figures in government. The judges in India have headed the press council, which serves as a press watchdog, and that the Indian Supreme Court is, is quite uh, strong and respected because of the, the, the status of its judges. So give us a sense, if you could, of how the Indian Supreme Court operates in comparative perspective. Is it, is it, is it a strong constitutional court uh, compared to others? Um, and how would you situate it uh, among the constitutional courts of the world. Thanks so much, Jeff. And before I begin, let me just say what an honor it is to be here with um, these two these super lawyers. Uh, for those who are not familiar with India, these are really two of the best lawyers in the entire country. So it's a real honor for me. Um, yes, I mean, Arvind Dutter was mentioning that the right to privacy was granted in this kind of penumbral right. And Jeff rightly points out that sounds very much like very famous 1965 case of Griswold v. Connecticut, which is kind of the foundation doctrinally for Roe v. Wade. And of course, um, you know, this is very controversial in the United States, right? It's not actually written in the Constitution. We have this very textualist Supreme Court now. And many people think, in fact, Roe is at grave risk this very term in the case of uh, Whole Women's Health Collective uh, versus Jackson. So, you know, it's really controversial here. And I guess in response to Jeff's question, I'd say, it's not so controversial in India because the Supreme Court has established itself as just one of the major institutions of the country, and it has done so using precisely this methodology of, I wouldn't say inventing, but building space for itself um, beyond the written text of the Constitution. And actually, I'll just highlight two institutional features of the Indian Supreme Court that make it so powerful. So one of those is that the courts and um, all courts in India are basically self-replicating. The president of India appoints the judges, but must do so, the judges say, on the basis of a recommendation from the collegium, which is the five, in the Supreme Court case, five most senior judges. And so that means you don't have the same level of politicized uh, appointments. The, the Supreme Court is fairly autonomous in that sense. It's able to remain somewhat insulated from the, the the daily grind of politics because it's self-appointing. And that's not written anywhere in the Indian Constitution. That's something the judges have invented. Similarly, the Indian Supreme Court has expanded access to itself, You know, whereas our Supreme Court is always very concerned with standing issues and trying to get the narrowest possible grounds and really you know, shut out a lot of cases. The Indian Supreme Court, very famously in the 1980s, um, created a category of public interest litigation, where if you are trying to make a claim based on a fundamental right, you basically just write something on a piece of paper and send it to the court, and they may hear the case. And so 
they've been very open, whereas our Supreme Court's been very pinched, I suppose, in access to the public. So that's those two things, which are, again, not written in the Constitution, have made it a really central institution. I'll just say that courts in South Asia, including the Indian Supreme Court, will sometimes take on cases without even a formal claim. It's a suamoto jurisdiction is what it's called. And so you'll see like, it's like, well, you know, we just think this is a social problem. We're going to go and we're going to order some institution to do something about it. So quite activist and generally speaking, from my perspective, quite respected. So it's quite almost a very nice um, counterpoint with the U.S. Supreme Court, which also lacks a textual basis, but hasn't, um, you know, necessarily it's done different things with that in trying to build up its power. Thank you so much for that wonderful comparison of the U.S. and the Indian Supreme Court. You are indeed uh, super lawyers, Menaka Goswami and Arvind Dattar. And uh, Menaka, if I may, I'm going to ask you to share with our audience as concisely as you can the kind of founding story of the Indian Supreme Court. You have a wonderful article uh, which describes how the court identifies not only negative uh, liberties, but also positive ones. The, the preamble talks about uh, we, the people of India, having resolved to constitute India into a sovereign, socialist, secular, democratic republic that is a secure justice, social, economic, and political, um, is a kind of rights articulator. But it's, it's, it's a big and important story about how this court, uh, the, the constitution adopted in 1950, gave rise to such a powerful court. And you've also noted that the rise of the court is connected to the rise of the ruling political party in India and that the court and the parliament have worked in tandem. So if you could tell us the story of how the Indian Supreme Court interpreting the Indian constitution came to be the powerful institution that it is today. Um, so you're right, Jeff. Um, you know, India's constitution is adopted in 1950. Um, the precursor to the Indian Supreme Court was, in fact, the federal court. So, you know, India's history includes that of colonization. The British colonized us for 200 years, culminates towards the end of their rule. The last 20 years or so, we have a federal court. And that federal court continued after independence, before the constitution was adopted, and then the Supreme Court came to be. And, you know, when India's constitution was being written, um, obviously the framers of this constitution, many of whom had served time in prison and, you know, you know had kind of... Um, you know, fought against the British, was skeptical of courts and judges, obviously, right? Uh, because they had been imprisoned by many judges uh, when, when India was a colony. So there's this wonderful line in, in the Constituent Assembly debates where, you know, one of the members is saying to the other, well, you know, we, we can't expect much from judges in the Supreme Court. And um, Prime Minister Nehru responds by saying that, well, as long as they don't get in the way of this country that we're going to build. Um, you know, fast forward, we're in 2017, you went to, you, you, you've heard about the privacy judgment, but the court has really become a people's court. Um, and Tom Ginsburg has written about this, that when you open up access, that's how you sort of, you know, become, or you, you, you take upon yourself a role of a, you know, muscular court, which is going to wade into political issues, which is going to create rights, which is going to hear everyone, which is going to set the terms 
uh, of constitutionalism, if you will, in a country, not just the constitutional text and interpreting the constitutional text, but setting the terms of this constitutional conversation in a country of what 1.7 billion uh, were diverse. We have different opinions. We're from different religions, different castes, different orientations. Um, and, and we're really a people who, you know, have a lot of opinions and there are lots of movements. So imagine this court, right? And it's very different in terms of texture and in terms of its institutional reality from the, from SCOTUS, from the Supreme Court of the United States, which in a year will hear anything between 20 to 60 cases a year. India's Supreme Court will dispose of, on average, between 50 to 70,000 cases every year. So it's more similar to Brazil, Brazil's top court. It doesn't sit on bank, as Tom has already told you. So at present, you know, we have 34 positions in the court. Um, these judges will sit in, in panels of two, three, five, seven, uh, bigger, if you have something as critical and seminal as a privacy judgment. But they hear all kinds of cases. And this is the burden of being an Indian Supreme Court judge, right, or a high court judge. You will hear everything from a service law claim to a big constitutional challenge in the same day. Um, Mr. Dada and I were in court in different cases today, just today, right, in, in virtual court. You know, I had an arbitration appeal. Uh, he had I don't know, a very important case. And the same day, the court is also hearing uh, complex commercial cases. Other panels are hearing constitutional law challenges to attacks. All of this is happening in one day. This is the docket of the average judge, right, who is servicing a clientele of 1.7 billion people, while also saying at the same time that I will not be governed by social or popular morality. I will be governed by the values of this constitution. And it does take, you know, it's not just that you expect independence and courage, but you also expect diligence because it is also a huge burden to navigate the spectrum of cases where you have both original jurisdiction and appellate jurisdiction. So you can go to the Supreme Court in the first instance, or you can go to the Supreme Court on appeal from the various high courts. Um, and that is quite different from the American Supreme Court, which decides to grant cert, and which decides to hear a small selection of highly important cases. So you don't have unfettered access to the court. And when courts allow it, allow themselves to have unfettered access, sometimes your case is so moto, then they're also saying, we are going to wade into this business of building a country. And that is what the Supreme Court has done. Sometimes it gets it right. Sometimes it gets it wrong. Sometimes it's deeply introspective. It goes back and corrects its mistakes. And it is, you know, open to doing that. And I think that's what distinguishes it. You know, it's, it's unique in South Asia and it's unique, uh, and, and Tom will know this, it is unique but because you have had one constitution from 1950 to now. We celebrate Republic Day tomorrow. Uh, it's a big day. I think for me, it's my favorite day of the year. It's the day the Constitution of India was adopted. And it's a big day. You know, uh, this is the constitution that gave Arvindatar and the language to argue against criminalization of homosexuality. It's the same constitution that gives us the language to argue commercial cases, the language to argue social economic rights cases. Um, so, you know, it's been one uninterrupted constitution. Tom knows that's pretty rare. Tom's work will show you that the average constitution would last 16 years, Tom. It's, it's like being a teenager and then you're out, you know. 
Um, but India's constitution will, will turn, you know, a wise 75 soonish. It's endured, much like America's has, and it caters to and services very different constituencies. That's the point. And it does so because these judges interpret for this vast, diverse, tumultuous country, which is also having a major moment like your country is with democracy and democratic constitutionalism. These are important political moments in the United States, as is in India. I mean, I noted, Jeff, that the two voting rights bills didn't clear the Senate. Um, you've had this, you know, really interesting vaccine mandate decision, twin decisions coming out of the Supreme Court. You know, these are pandemic era challenges that SCOTUS is facing. Similarly, India's Supreme Court is facing pandemic era challenges. And that's what great courts do. They endure crisis, but they keep the terms of the constitutional conversation going. And the Supreme Court has done in India a very good job of that. Thank you for that inspiring intervention. It is great that January 26th is your favorite day, Constitution Day at the National Constitution Center. Our favorite day is September 17th. So we will look forward to celebrating with you tomorrow. <laughs> and as you say, the central role of both of our courts in these challenging times is crucial to understand. Thanks, thanks for that phenomenal introduction. Friends, as you know, we're a nonprofit and we rely on your support to put on wonderful programs like this. We are launching an exciting crowdsourcing uh, campaign. Thanks to our friends at the John Templeton Foundation, every dollar that you give to support the We the People and Live at the NCC podcasts will be matched uh, one-to-one up to a total of $234,000 to celebrate the 234th anniversary of the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, you can go to constitutioncenter.org slash we the people, and it would be wonderful if you could give any amount, $5, $10 or more, to signal your membership in this meaningful community of lifelong learners and your support for uh, the programming that makes it possible. Arvid Dator, our friend Colin Thibault asked the basic question, what are some major differences between the U.S. and Indian constitution? And can you give us a sense of the fundamental rights in the Indian constitution versus the U.S. Bill of Rights? How do they compare? And also this important question of how politics affect judicial independence in India. Well, it's a long question. I'll try to pack as much as I can in a few minutes. Well, the first important difference is the length. India is perhaps the longest uh, constitution in the world. And as Menaka pointed out, that our constitution was not a completely freshly drafted document. I think U.S. students will know that we had the Government of India Act of 1935, where for the first time you had the concept of a federal government and a provincial government, and you had the union list and the state list and so on, which is basically patterned on the Canadian constitution. So in, when the Constitution Assembly was formed to create a constitution of India, there are two choices, either to have a short constitution like the U.S. Constitution, where the terms are very broad, simple, broad terms, and you leave it to the judges to interpret it, or you have a long, detailed constitution, which is a very lengthy constitution, but then provides for every possible thing in, in terms of governance. And Dr. Ambedkar, who was the president of the assembly and was called one of the founding fathers of the constitution, he 
he was criticized for adopting a large long constitution they said that look this is a huge constitution a constitution must just be a few articles here we got a whole forest that was the criticism laid on at that point of time and he made an outstanding speech which is about 11 pages in the constitution assembly debates and i think all of you if i can share with you it'll be nice he says that look india is a nascent democracy as menaka said we have different castes different religions people don't know that when we became independent we had 555 princely states 555 princely states who were sovereign in their own right they were as independent as the us or india they all got together they were integrated into one long country so there were different religions different race different official languages so he said that look we don't have what they call the uk model of constitutional conventions where they have got the house of commons for 300 400 years they've got basic conventions they may not have a written constitution but they got everything in convention which are followed so he called that as constitutional morality adopting the words of professor dicey and he justified the long constitution so to my friend i'll say the first thing is our length our constitution contains several chapters we have basically one chapter on citizenship then we have as you write the most important chapter on fundamental rights where fundamental rights was not there in the government of india act two important chapters were added one was on fundamental rights and one was on direct principles of state policy so fundamental rights are the rights given to citizens and people some rights are only for citizens some rights are for citizens and persons so jeff if you come to india as a citizen you don't have the right of freedom of speech but you have the right to equality because article 14 applies to persons but freedom of speech applies to citizens so there's a distinction between some rights given to citizens some rights given to persons then these rights have been made very very clear you have the right to equality and then you have exceptions to that right you have right to equality but 15 and 16 enables you to make affirmative action you can reserve make quotas for backward classes socially educationally backward classes then we have the 19 which is contains the seven freedoms free speech and expression right to form associations to travel throughout the country to practice propagate religion to carry on business so these are the seven freedoms in article 19 then 21 is the right to life and liberty you know we had the emergency where fundamental rights were suspended so after the emergency we had amended the constitution and said that no matter what happens emergency or no emergency the right to life and liberty cannot be touched at all so that's completely untouchable you can't touch the right to life and liberty no court can amend it so we got that particular provision then we have got direct to principles of state policy and then we have the various articles pertaining to the central government the president the vice president the supreme court similar provisions for the states then you have the election commission of india that's in the constitution you have the auditor general of india that's in the constitution then you have commissions for backward classes for scheduled castes that's again in the constitution so we have all these provisions in the constitution which ultimately goes on to almost 400 articles and 10 schedules so it's a massive document but i think it's a wonderful document and as menaka said i share her sentiments about the indian supreme court somebody rightly put it it is not the supreme court of india but it's the supreme court for india and it was this institution which has kept and preserved democracy and one most important thing which i'll tell the gentleman who asked the question in 1973 we had what i call the golden moment of our constitution where the they delivered a judgment by a wafer thin majority of 7 is to 6 and they said that parliament can amend the constitution but they cannot alter its basic structure what is basic structure again was left undecided they said the supreme court will decide what 
basic structure is. It's almost like a Marbury versus Madison moment for India, where they said that the basic structure of the constitution cannot be altered. Now, what is basic structure? Later, Supreme Court has said secular nature of the country. Tomorrow, they can't make the country into a Christian state or a Muslim state or a Hindu state. It's a secular country. The Republican form of government is part of basic structure. The right to equality is part of basic structure. So, we have got the concept of basic structure, which again is not there in the constitution, but has been read into it like privacy. And this is what the Israeli author Yanni Rosnev calls declaring an unconstitutional constitutional amendment. So, a constitutional amendment which alters the basic structure is an unconstitutional amendment. Recently, I appeared in the case for the National Judicial Appointments Commission. The Supreme Court struck it down saying that this power of changing the appointment of judges is completely unconstitutional. So these are the basic differences between the US Constitution. But I must uh, thank the US Constitution for giving us so many new concepts. The right to privacy, the due process in Article 14, then you have the human dignity from the Eighth Amendment and so on and so forth. So I must tell the audience that we have borrowed very heavily from the US Constitution in many, many important cases. That is so fascinating. Thank you for sharing all of that for that central idea that there could be an unconstitutional constitutional amendment, um, not an idea that the U.S. Constitution has explicitly countenanced, although there have been some who have suggested that a constitutional amendment that violated natural law might be unconstitutional. That's, that's an exotic view in the U.S., but in, in India, it's been embraced. And that, uh, as you describe it, makes the Indian Supreme Court a central actor against what Tom Ginsburg, you have called democratic backsliding. And in your important work, uh, Tom Ginsburg, you've described how democracies can suffer near fatal deterioration in, their, in the quality of their democratic institutions, and that constitutional courts can provide a backstop against that effort. You've given an example like Columbia in 2010, showing how a constitutional court can play a role in protecting rule of law norms in the face of a civil war. So tell us, Tom Ginsburg, about the Indian Supreme Court and democratic backsliding and how it plays a central role in protecting fundamental rule of law values in the face of threats. Terrific. And Mr. Doctor actually, you know, was just touching on this in a way. And most Americans don't realize the big crisis that Indian democracy was facing in the 1970s when Indira Gandhi declared this emergency sort of spuriously and was trying to take over the political system. What happened? That's kind of a case of a near miss, is what Professor Huck and I call it, when democracy looks like it's about to fall apart and then something happens. And what happened is that, um, you know, the opposition got together and they ran an election and they won, surprisingly. And one of the points that Professor Huck and I in our article make in regard to this is that when democracy is saved in these circumstances, it is often institutions which are not themselves democratically legitimated that play the critical role. So in that case, it was the Supreme Court saying, wait a minute, you, you know, we have this doctrine of unconstitutional constitutional amendments. It was also the Election Commission, right, which was running, uh, you know, operated and can, it's really quite an amazing thing, the Indian <laughs> An Indian election, you know, an election with a billion something people participating um, requires an incredible bureaucracy and incredibly effective, you know, institution that is not democratically legitimated. And that's what saved the day. And when you look in country after country, you see this. And so I think that's one of the lessons we can take. And I think it was true after January 6th here in the United States that you had 
well, first of all, in November 2020, you had, you know, tens of thousands of local electoral officials, sometimes very faceless, right, who ended up count, making sure votes were counted, uh, secretaries of state, military that did not intervene and indicated it would not, um, and judges who upheld the rule of law and rejected, you know, basically spurious claims by the the Trump campaign in that case. So we were also saved by non-democratically legitimated institutions. Now, I think India is really important in the global history of this phenomenon because not only was that an important early case, but also this doctrine which Mr. Dutta was talking about, unconstitutional constitutional amendments, turns out to be a really important weapon and it's spread all over the world. It's been borrowed by many, many constitutional courts. And in fact, as we sit here, there's a really important case going on in Kenya um, where this is precisely an issue. That basically what's happening is the Kenyan political elites are trying to kind of cartelize the political system so that they'll just be in power forever. And they're doing it, you know, in ways that appear on their surface to be democratic. And the court, lower courts, the Court of Appeals and the uh, district court, high court said, wait a minute, you know, if we let you pass this constitutional amendment, it's procedurally legitimate. But if we let that happen, you're going to have total control over the system. And our democracy won't, in fact, be a democracy. There won't be substantive possibility of losing power. We see this, of course, in some American states. What's remarkable is that Kenya, borrowing from India, you know, the courts may end up disallowing that. Now, our Supreme Court doesn't have such a doctrine. Um, but we do, at least at the state level, have, of course, the national constitution to make sure that there isn't that kind of lockup at the states. So it's just a really important doctrine, a really one that I think is going to be spreading in many other countries around the world um, in order to, if if and where democracy is to survive. Fascinating to learn about this doctrine of unconstitutional constitutional amendments uh, spreading in Kenya and uh, embraced by other countries like India and uh, as a central protection against democratic backsliding. Dr. Goswami, tell us, if you would, about the values underlying the U.S. and Indian constitutions. Uh, Bonnie Zedek asks, what constitutions has the Indian constitution taken inspiration from? Did the U.S. constitution and declaration of independence influence the Indian constitution, uh, which has a strong equality clause, or was the Indian experience in equality central because of the anti-colonial struggles out of which the Indian constitution grew? And then connect that, if you would, to current cases before the Indian Supreme Court involving race and caste, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court just yesterday agreed to take up what may be the most important affirmative action case of uh, a generation. And Indian Supreme Court has decided important affirmative action cases involving race and caste uh, give us a sense of what the court has decided and what sort of race issues are, and caste issues are on the horizon in India. That's a great set of questions, Jeff. So I think, you know, we have to understand that equality as it's practiced constitutionally uh, in India and the United States is quite different in terms of constitutional doctrine. And I've said this before, um, the text of constitutions are interesting and, and they influence doctrinal development, uh, but you can often have identical texts and very different um, conclusions, uh, very different interpretations. So, you know, India's commitment to equality is, is really one of substantive equality, which means that, you know, it does take into account historical disadvantage, historical discrimination. So caste as a marker in India, the constitutional text initially provided for 
special provisions for um, heavily historically discriminated uh, castes of people, what we call scheduled castes, scheduled tribes. That has, you know, from the original constitutional document been expanded. You now have um, reservations, as we call it, which is similar to but also slightly different from affirmative action. So you have reservation of seats in, you know, public institutions, educational institutions, um, political constituencies for scheduled caste, scheduled tribes, and other backward classes, which is, you know, in fact, a majority uh, of, of the population often. Um, so the development of, you know, what started out from the text and the development of that doctrine and that implementation uh, is, you know, is actually secured by the Supreme Court. So the idea being that we do take historical disadvantage into account when we, and then we make reparations. So our substantive equality doctrine is one that actually makes reparations. Um, you know, one can contrast that with the treatment of race in American constitutionalism. Um, so slavery is abolished, of course, uh, but no reparations are made. I think, you know, my friend Catherine Franke has a great book out called, you know, Reparations. Um, that you ought to make reparations for slavery to African-American people. So I think it's a formal equality concept. It treats, you know, X and Y alike. It would treat Tom and me alike, which is fine. Um, but constitutionally, where in India you take historical discrimination into account, in America you pretty much don't. Like you said, um, you know, there's there are very important cases coming up which will test affirmative action as its you know, policies and as its practiced in elite institutions, educational institutions in America. So it's going to be interesting to see how the court rules. Now, the court is also uh, interestingly divided in, in, in the United States. Um, you, know, you have Republican appointed judges who often will rule a certain way and you have Democrat administration appointed judges who will often rule somewhat differently, what you call the conservative and liberal. And right now you have six conservatives to three liberal judges. So that will have some bearing. But be that as it may, you do have very different doctrines in terms of um, commitments to equality. You know, um, what is that threshold and how do you look back into history, uh, which I would argue does shape your present opportunities or do you not? So race and caste is, is treated quite differently and provides an insight into how these equality doctrines in, you know, the world's oldest constitutional democracy and the world's largest constitutional democracy um, as it's practiced. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that. Arvind Dator, your thoughts about the affirmative action cases, because you've, uh, you know them so well and the contrast is interesting. There was the 2005 Shania decision where the court adopted the minority view in Gratz versus Bollinger and struck down affirmative action by a state legislature, concluding that once the scheduled castes are included in the lists, then any division of them would amount to tinkering with the presidential list. Help us unpack that. Fascinating. Um, and, and also tell us about the affirmative action cases on the docket. And then there are several questions in the chat about cases coming up. Uh, Mr. Jatan Gandhi asks you, Arvind Dator, does India need to borrow from the U.S. the ethos of the First Amendment? It was so fascinating to learn from you that uh, free speech rights only go to citizens, not all persons. Do you think they should be expanded? And then put on the table, if you will, what you think are the most significant constitutional cases on the horizon for the Indian Supreme Court? 
Yes, there are three parts to your question. One is about the affirmative action. The constitution said that there could be reservation. Uh, you can just take affirmative action as synonymous with reservation for our discussion. The constitution said that you could make reservation for socially and educationally backward classes of citizens. It never used the word caste. As Menaka said, she talked to race and caste. The constitution never uses the word caste. It so happened for political reasons. Uh, there was a commission formed in 1950 and again in 1970, which had gone into the what are the backward class, what are the backward uh, castes in India, and so they identified a certain number of castes on certain parameters as backward castes, as backward castes. The government made a reservation. Now, under our constitution, there's already a reservation for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. Scheduled castes are those people who were unfortunately called the untouchables in the days of Mahatma Gandhi. And then we abolished the untouchability concept. It's constitutionally prohibited now. So you had scheduled castes and you have scheduled tribes. India has a large tribal population also in different parts of the country. So scheduled castes and scheduled tribe gets a reservation of 15% and 7.5%. 15 for scheduled castes and 7.5% for scheduled tribes. The government made a reservation of 27.5% for schedule for backward classes because earlier there were some cases on reservations and then the Supreme Court said that, look, reservations cannot normally cross 50%. There's nothing magic about 50%. They just said that, look, you can have affirmative action to the extent of 50% and merit will play a role in the remaining 50%. So that's called the open category or the open quota and you've got the reserve category, which is the first 50%. One major challenge in what is called the uh, Indra Soni case, in fact, she's a lawyer in Delhi, her name is Indra Soni, now the case takes after her name. So, Indra Soni case was, could you have reservations on the basis of caste? And the Supreme Court answered in the affirmative, they said that basically in India, very often the caste itself represent backward classes. So, they equated caste as equal to class, which some scholars say was a wrong decision. But nevertheless, that has now come to stay. So, Backward classes, and now they've got backward classes, most backward classes in this division, they get 27.5%. So this is the role of affirmative action. Now, recently we did a case in Maharashtra where they tried to add new 16% more for the Maratha community. And I had occasion to appear in the Bombay High Court. I lost there. And when we came to Supreme Court, we succeeded. Supreme Court said that, look, you can't cross the 50% limit. And that can't be done by parliamentary legislation. Now, the next important case, which is going to come maybe in May, June, as soon as the pandemic is over, is what is the significance of this 50% limit? Because the government, the I mean, the ruling party here has amended the constitution, the 103rd amendment to the constitution of India. And the other difference between what my friend asked was, we have far more amendments than you have. I don't know. I think you have 40 amendments. I'm not very sure. 40, 41 amendments to your constitution. 27. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we have already come to 103. So 103 amendments to the constitution. And there they have said that for economically weaker sections, there's going to be a reservation of additional 10%. So you've got 22.5% for scheduled cast, scheduled tribes, 27.5% for backward classes, and 10% for the poorer sections of the communities which are belong to the forward community. So among the open category, the non-backward classes has now a quota of 10%. <laughs> the Sorry, it's a bit confusing, but the question before the Supreme Court now is going to be, will it be unconstitutional to make a constitutional provision exceeding 50%? Can you cross the 50% limit? Because the question is, if you can make it 60, why not 70? Where do you draw the line? So that's going to be an interesting question that comes up. But today, the affirmative action is you got 
today a 60% quota system for different reservations for different categories and that's there we stand on affirmative action and uh, i as soon as the chief justice constitutes a bench of five or seven judges uh, we'll be arguing the case whether we should cross 50% or not so that's the important question yeah and i think he asked one last question about i missed that uh, I... there there was a question about free speech but uh, i i think yes, well, yes. May, maybe just quickly your okay, your, your thoughts about yeah. whether whether the, the, the right should be expanded beyond citizens and whether the U.S. should be a model. That was the question. Uh, no, actually what happened is they have reserved these free speech only for citizens. Yes. And the difference between the First Amendment and us is that yeah, the First Amendment is almost absolute. Whereas our right to free, free speech, speech and expression can be regulated. It can be regulated in terms of security of the country, defense of India and so on and so forth. But I must say that the Supreme Court of India has been very, very, very possessive about this free speech. In a case where they impose customs duty on newsprint, they told the government reconsider it because if newspapers become more expensive, the right to free expression is affected. When the government said that to uh, for the purpose of quota system, they said papers can't be more than 10 pages. They struck it down. They said you can't fetter free speech. So the Indian Supreme Court has been extremely jealous and possessive about the right of free speech and expression. And the only thing is, you know, whether it should go for all persons, I think it should. Anybody who is staying in India should have a right of free speech and expression. But as of now, it is only for the citizens. Thank you very much for that. Fascinating on both scores. Thanks for uh, helping us understand the affirmative action and free speech cases. Tom Ginsburg, the, the last word uh, in this absolutely wonderful discussion will be to you. Listening to all that you've heard and drawing on your deep knowledge of comparative constitutionalism, would you say that the Indian Supreme Court is strong and independent among global constitutional courts? And if that is the case, why is it the case? To what would you attribute its independence? Help us understand the Indian Supreme Court's success in the global context. It's a wonderful way to sum up uh, a lot of what we've heard. And I think we have heard, you know, many examples in which the Supreme Court is being looked to by people in the society to resolve the deepest and most fundamental questions of the day. You know, um, of course, the United States Constitution doesn't mention judicial review, and so some people say that's the source of our eternal um, sort of uh, hand-wringing about the counter-majoritarian difficulty. But this is an explicitly, you know, counter-majoritarian difficulty, which a court, which is, you know, legitimate and is being called on to decide the major questions of the day and you don't hear the same kind of discourse. Now, there is a lot of criticism of the court. I don't want to uh, sort of whitewash that. But it tends to be about, you know, a lot of criticism about particular decisions, a lot of criticism about the self-replicating nature of the court, which I referred to before. And I think that is one reason that the court has managed to remain so independent, is that attempts by politicians to manipulate the bench have been put aside uh, and have been rebuffed. And so that's what gives it a sense that it is, uh, you know, a major institution in Indian society. And of course, it's generating doctrines, as I also said, which have been spreading around the world. The creativity of the court is renowned, and we've heard many examples. I want to go back, actually, to one of the very first questions, which was the question about the right to life and how that's been interpreted. And of course, the language is very simple. It's very short. But in fact, that right to life has been a wellspring of different decisions by the Supreme Court. Just one example is the Supreme Court interpreted the right to life to say that there's actually a right to food in India. 
And I believe it was in one of that line of cases, I could be wrong about the, the doctrinal basis, um, you know, ordered every school in India to provide a, a food to kids, you know, which is incredible if you think about it. That's a court implementing a major administrative program, a welfare program, through an order based on the right to life. So, you know, I can't overstate its impact. Um, and that's true in India as well as abroad. Now, I, I do want to say the criticisms do mount. And the government of India, of course, which has been dominated now for, uh, you know, quite a while by the, the BJP, you know, doesn't see the court as its friend and is at times trying to, you know, have more influence on it to pressure the judges in various ways and has had some success. And so there's a very active discourse about the optimal level, I suppose, of judicial independence in India. But there's no doubt that as a positive matter, it's a very central institution and a very powerful one and a very independent one. Thank you so much to our wonderful panelists for a, a comparative constitutional discussion at the highest level. Uh, it spreads so much light to compare our different but related constitutional traditions. And I want to share a great quote that my colleague Sam Desai found when President Truman welcomed uh, Prime Minister Nehru, one of the founding fathers of India to America in 1949, he said, destiny willed it that our country should have been discovered in the search for a new route to yours. And this kind of discussion of the similarities and differences between our constitutions is very much in that spirit. Thanks to the Vindi Center for having suggested this great collaboration, and it certainly has wet my appetite uh, for more conversations about the important similarities and differences between uh, the Indian and American constitutions. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, Manaka Goraswame, Arvind Datar, and Tom Ginsburg, thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. And thanks thank to all you. for joining. Bye. This episode was produced by Tanea Topper, John Guerra, and Melody Rowell. It was engineered by David Stotts. Special thanks to the VD Center for Legal Policy for partnering with us on this program. Visit constitutioncenter.org debate to see a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, find the full lineup of our upcoming shows, and register to join us virtually. You can join us via Zoom, watch our live YouTube stream, or watch recorded videos after the fact in our media library at constitutioncenter.org constitution. As always, we'll share those programs on the podcast too, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, you can help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. Find us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.